In less than a month's time now, albeit a year late, the Tokyo Olympics are going to begin. 11,000 athletes from all over the world are going to gather together with one aim, to win gold. Following the opening of the Games, they're going to run and jump and swim and shoot and kick their way through 16 days of competition. The opening ceremony, though, whilst it marks the beginning of the Games, isn't the beginning of the journey for all of these athletes. For each of them, it started years, perhaps decades before, when they made the decision to pursue Olympic gold above all else. Up early in the morning, even in the depths of winter, to swim lap after lap of a cold pool, watching every calorie to make, make sure that your skin folds are just right. The cost, missing birthday parties as a child, time with friends, even school and study and careers foregone, all in the pursuit of one thing, gold. From the moment that commitment was made, each athlete living every second in pursuit of their objective. Well, friends, this evening as we begin our short three-week holiday series, I can't believe the Bible says, we're going to be looking together at one of Jesus' most confronting statements where he calls his disciples to sacrifice. To sacrifice so much more than just swimming a few laps or missing a few birthday parties. To sacrifice themselves. Here in chapter 14 of Luke's Gospel, where we find our passage tonight, Jesus' popularity was at its height. Large crowds were traveling with him, we're told. Some wanting to see more miracles that he'd been performing. Others hear more of his teaching. Others likely just following along with the crowd. Whatever the case, Jesus had an entourage. But he wasn't interested. He'd never been interested in just drawing a crowd. Jesus wanted committed disciples. He'd offered countless invitations to enter his kingdom most recently in the parable of the great banquet just a few verses earlier but now he turns back to the crowd that they might understand how much it would cost to enter his kingdom and so here in our passage tonight turning back to the crowd that was following him he explains to them in three different ways what he demands of his disciples. And the first is there in our passage in verse 26. Hate what you love most. Hate what you love most. This is what Jesus says, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Telling people to hate what they love most isn't exactly the way to draw a crowd or endear yourself to people, is it? And, and Jesus knew that. 
Jesus knew that some of the people who were listening to these words would hear them and say, oh gee, that's a bit tough, that's a bit hard, that's too much for me. And they would turn away. But you see, Jesus wanted followers, not fans. Disciples, not admirers. And so he makes this most astonishing, most challenging of statements to shock the crowds and us out of our complacency. Jesus' words here in this passage are frequently misunderstood. Perhaps you're sitting at home tonight wondering exactly what it is Jesus is getting at here. So what we're going to do together tonight is look at these words in context to work out what exactly it is that Jesus is and isn't saying. But let me warn you right at the start of the message tonight. When we come to truly understand Jesus' words here, rather than offering relief, you're going to see they're actually harder and more confronting and more demanding than you ever could have imagined. The first step to our understanding tonight is that we need to read Jesus' words here in light of the rest of the scriptures. Because what Jesus is saying here can't contradict what he says elsewhere or what the scriptures say elsewhere. That's what we call the inerrancy of scripture. The fact that the scriptures are without fault and without error, they don't contradict themselves. In the fifth commandment, back in Exodus chapter 20, we're told, honour your father and your mother. So what Jesus is saying here can't contradict that. In fact, in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus criticizes the Pharisees for ignoring the fifth commandment. In Ephesians chapter 5 in our New Testaments, husbands are told to love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Later on in 1 Timothy, Paul says that someone who doesn't care for his family isn't qualified to be an elder in the church. So Jesus' words can't be contradicting those commands. Nor is Jesus negating his own command to love others, including our enemies. Love was to be the the hallmark, the distinguishing feature of his disciples. So, if Jesus isn't contradicting any of those passages in what he's saying here, what is he saying in telling us to hate our families? Well, what we need to understand is that sometimes the Bible uses language of hatred to describe different degrees of priority or affection. The clearest example is probably in Genesis chapter 29. Let me read from there now using the ESV. The the words are going to appear on the screen for you. This is Genesis chapter 29, verses 30 and 31. So Jacob went in to Rachel also. And he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Do you see how verse 31 there uses the term hated to describe different degrees of affection? Jacob didn't go from loving Leah to hating her in the course of one verse. No, it's that he loved Rachel more than Leah. It's describing different degrees of priority or affection. The NIV actually makes this explicit. It says, 
his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. To hate is to give second place to something. To be willing to let it go if need be. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Our ultimate loyalty is to him. Every other relationship in our lives must take second place. And so, friends, our love for Jesus should be so strong that it makes even our love for family seem pale in comparison. As the Scottish theologian Thomas Boston said, no man can be a true disciple of Christ to whom Christ is not dearer than what is dearest to him in the world. Let me read that again. No man or woman or child can be a true disciple of Christ to whom Christ is not dearer than what is dearest to him in the world. Friends, we need to feel the weight of Jesus' words. They're astonishingly challenging. I know they certainly are for me. Jesus calls us here to ensure that every relationship, including our love for family, is second to our love for him. We need to take this seriously. These are hard, confronting words from our Lord. And so we need to examine ourselves. How might we do that? Well, I've come up with a few diagnostic questions for you to think about in your heart and your mind tonight to help you consider if your love for family or perhaps another relationship might have gotten in the way of your love for Jesus. The first question, do I regularly miss gathering with other believers in favour of time with family? Do I regularly miss gatherings with the other body of believers on Sunday? Do I regularly miss house church during the week in order to spend time with family? If so, I'm loving my family more than Jesus. Am I perhaps holding back from fully-fledged allegiance to Jesus or perhaps obedience to some of his commands because it will upset my family? If so, I'm loving my family more than Jesus. Do I fail to serve the Lord or perhaps only serve him half-heartedly because I've made my family an idol? Do they take all of my energy, all of my focus, so that in reality I've got no time left for serving God, no time for serving him or his people, no time for acts of mercy or sharing the gospel? Here's one for the parents particularly amongst us. What's the focus of my love for family? Is my primary burden to see my children grow up as committed followers of the Lord Jesus? Is that my number one hope for them? And if I say that it is, and I pray that all of us would say that, I wonder, does the time that we spend actually reflect that? Or perhaps, am, am I teaching our children in action, if not in word, that their athletic, that their academic, that their artistic development is more important than their spiritual growth? We fall short, my brothers and sisters, when we spend more time driving our kids to sport or lessons on one weekend 
than we do praying for their souls over the rest of the month. Our primary role as parents is to disciple our children. If they're smart or can kick a goal or play an instrument, play an instrument that's great. But our primary job is to disciple our children in the way of Jesus. And that means actively, intentionally putting him first that all may see in every aspect of family life. Perhaps that's something that you might want to chat about around the dinner table tonight. How you can more determinedly make Jesus and serving him and growing in him the center of your family life. Jesus isn't calling us here, friends, to neglect our responsibilities to our families. But we love them best when we hate them. It's always a good idea to read the terms and conditions before committing to something, isn't it? Otherwise, you could end up like the 22,000 people in Manchester in the UK who were tricked a few years back. A free public Wi-Fi provider in the city inserted a joke clause into their terms and conditions where people legally bound themselves to do 1,000 hours of community service. The people who accepted the terms and conditions and who ticked the box to say that they'd read every word legally committed themselves to clean toilets at music festivals. Disgusting. To scrape chewing gum off the streets. Not good, but that's not as bad as the first one. But the last one's last one takes the cake. This is what they committed to do, and I quote, to manually relieve sewer blockages. That's not fun. Here in this passage, friends, Jesus is very clear about the terms and conditions of being his disciple. And it's a lot more costly, let me tell you, than cleaning a sewer. Let's keep reading from verse 27. This is Luke 14, verse 27. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Even though at that time, Jesus' disciples didn't yet understand fully the type of death that he would die. They knew what it meant to carry your cross. When you saw someone carrying their cross, you saw someone about to die. Someone about to experience rejection and humiliation and pain, the most gruesome form of death in the Roman world. You saw someone who was carrying on their very back their instrument of execution. Like carrying around an electric chair on your back in today's terms. Friends, please see, there's, there's no way to, to soften Jesus' words here. Jesus himself walked the way of the cross. And he wants everyone who would follow him to walk that way too. Dying to ourselves every single day. Denying ourselves. Giving up every claim to our lives. Living for him. Prepared to suffer and even die for him. Perhaps you've heard someone say, and sometimes Christians even sigh and say this, something like, well, that's just my cross to bear. And often the person's talking about 
medical challenges or financial responsibilities or relationship griefs that they face. Now, can I say, whilst those challenges are very real and many in our church family are going through that right now, don't let me hear, please don't hear me listening that. But can I say, that's not the cross that Jesus is talking about here. In fact, I'd go so far as to say, to use that phrase like that actually lessens the impact of Jesus' words. Because to take up your cross means one thing, to give up your life for Jesus' sake. To give up your life and willingly embrace sacrifice and suffering and persecution for him. You see, carrying your cross is a particular kind of suffering. It's the suffering we endure because we are a Christian. It's being bashed up and bagged at school for being a Christian. It's being disowned by your family because you chose Christ. It's losing your job because you aren't willing to wear an LGBTQI pride badge. And please see, friends, Jesus says here, lest you're tempted there in your living room tonight, to think to yourself in the warm and comfort. Now, that's fine for others, but that's not really my cup of tea. Lest you're tempted to think, look, that's only for the really hyper-serious Christians. Look, I'm just going to meander along on my own way. I'm not into that kind of stuff. Please see Jesus' words here. Unless we carry our cross, we cannot be his disciples. If we claim to follow Christ as our Lord, Our life must be patterned after the cross. Just as Jesus gave his life for us, we too now die to ourselves and sacrificially live for him. And so the question we need to ask, friends, is am I willing to die for Jesus? Because if we're not willing to die for Jesus, We're not willing to live the life that he has called us to live. Friends, it's costly to live this life. It costs you everything you have. And so Jesus tells us, count the cost. If you're watching tonight and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you haven't made that decision to follow him, can I just say, first of all, It's fantastic to have you with us. I pray that you find God's word challenging. But can I say, if that's you, before you decide to follow Jesus, you need to understand what you're getting yourself into. That's what Jesus is telling you here. Because salvation is free, my friend. Jesus died on that cross, paying our sin debt entirely. There is nothing that you bring to that transaction but your sin itself. Salvation is free, but following Jesus will cost you everything that you have. To help his disciples and us count the cost, Jesus gives us two examples in the form of parables here. The first is from the world of construction. Let's keep reading from verse 28. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, 
saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. There's no point starting a project unless you've got the resources to finish it. I can still remember a house in the suburb where I grew up. I used to walk past it regularly. And for about 15 years or so, it was only half finished. The foundation was put down, the brick walls were up and the roof was on. But that was it. There were no doors, no windows, no furnishings. The person who began the project had obviously failed to count the cost and they had run out of money along the way. And it was a source of ridicule. You'd walk past and laugh, thinking, oh, they obviously ran out of money. It's a source of of ridicule. We need to count the cost. Are we willing to endure the cost to see the project through to completion? And Jesus then takes a second example in the form of a parable from the world of war, from verse 31. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation whilst the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. This second parable is getting us to consider the same question, to count the cost of following Jesus. But do you see it's coming from a slightly different angle? It's asking us to consider the cost of not following Jesus. There are two kings in this parable, and I don't think that's a mistake. I think we're symbolic of the first king. That's what we consider ourselves to be when we try to go our own way, don't we? We're acting as if we're kings of our own lives. If we find ourselves coming up against a more powerful king, in this case symbolic of Jesus, who has greater resources than us, we need to consider the cost of not entering into a peace treaty with him before it's too late. Because ultimately failing to do that will lead to destruction. The cost of failing to enter into peace with that king who has 20,000 men is greater. It's total destruction, eternity in hell. And so, friends, with these two parables, Jesus is calling us to do some careful reckoning, to sit down and do the calculations before we decide to follow him. Because the truth is, it's not easy. Jesus requires nothing less than the total surrender of all that you have. That's what he says there in verse 33. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. There's no possibility of misunderstanding what Jesus is saying here, is there? There's no wiggle room he leaves us. Unless we hate our families, carry our cross, count the cost, we cannot be his disciples. Unless we love him above all else, unless we give up all claim on our lives, unless we're willing to suffer and die for him, unless we count the cost, friends, we aren't his disciples. And so let me ask you tonight, have you 
counted the cost of following Jesus. The sad reality is, many who profess faith in Christ give up precious little for him. We try to use Jesus to justify our sinful worldly desires, to hold on to what we want in life, and to refuse to let God have it. We try to be kings over our own kingdom. Our money, that's a big one. Our time, our comfort, our possessions, our ambitions, even sadly, our wounds. So my brother, my sister, let me ask you, what are you clutching onto that's keeping you from following Jesus the way he demands to be followed? As if all of this wasn't overwhelmingly confronting and challenging. Do you notice how Jesus just keeps upping the ante in this passage? There's no relief. His words become more and more and more intense and demanding. As if all of that wasn't enough, Jesus ends with a sobering illustration for us that just drives the point home. If we aren't this kind of disciple, we're useless. Verse 34. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Jesus' point here is as clear as it is direct. Unless we follow Jesus in this way, unless we follow Jesus in the way that he demands, we're useless to the kingdom, as worthless as salt that isn't even salty. As we saw last week with Ryan, Salt has a lot of uses, but if it loses what is its very essence, saltiness, it's worthless. It deserves to just be thrown out, defiled by impurities. It isn't even fit, Jesus says, for the manure pile. Manure could be used in the soil as a fertilizer to bring about growth, but all salt would do was contaminate it. Jesus is talking here about someone who claims to be a disciple of Jesus but who isn't really following him. Someone who's half-hearted in their commitment. Someone who hasn't counted the cost. Who, in reality, doesn't love Jesus more than other people or stuff. Who doesn't carry their cross daily. They're not willing to die or sacrifice for Jesus. Friends, a disciple who doesn't give over everything to Jesus just isn't a disciple. They're deluded, they're deceived, or they're a fake. But they're not a disciple. As the preacher Vince Havner put it, a man who is faithful to his wife most of the time is not faithful at all. A man who is faithful to his country most of the time is a traitor. There's no such thing as part-time loyalty to Christ. It is all or nothing. My brothers and sisters, the Jesus who calls us to this is the one who himself counted the cost. 
Jesus knew he'd be betrayed. Jesus knew that he would be forsaken and suffer on the cross. But well before the incarnation, before the creation of the world, in fact, Jesus counted the cost and determined to give himself for us. And he calls us, his disciples, his followers, to walk in his footsteps. To close, I'd like to share with you the words of the American pastor, Stephen J. Lawson. And I'd invite you there in your home to take these words as your own and commit or recommit your life to the Lord this day. I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. The die has been cast. I've stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I will not look back, let up, slow down, back away or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith, love by patience, live by prayer, and labor by power. My pace is set, my gait is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow. My way is rough, my companions few, my guide reliable, my mission clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, deterred, lured away, turned back, deluded or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity. I will not negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, nor meander in the maze of mediocrity. I will not give up, back up, let up or shut up until I have prayed up, preached up, stored up and stayed up the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I must go until he returns, give until I drop, preach until all know, and work until he comes. And when he comes to get his own, he will have no trouble recognizing me. My colors are flying high, and they are clear for all to see. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for you. Lord God, we thank you for the truth, the penetrating truth of your word. Lord, we have had our hearts revealed to us this evening. The corrupt, divided nature of our hearts. Lord, we confess that far too often we seek to serve you and ourselves. We are lured by the temptations of this world by your good gifts, by relationships with others, with our families, with this creation that you have given us to enjoy. Lord, so much of your gifts to us, Lord, we have abused and turned into idols. Lord, we confess that before you now. 
Lord, we pray that you might help us to place Jesus in the place of total authority and lordship in our lives. May he not be second. May he be number one. May our love for him be so strong, so pure, so undiluted that our love for all other things, even our family, just pales in comparison to our love for you. Lord, each of us here tonight, gathered in our homes or elsewhere, have put different things above Christ. We pray that by your grace and mercy that you might reveal those to us now, that we might repent, that we might cast ourselves again at the foot of the cross, that we might receive your forgiveness and your empowering spirit to live day by day. And we pray all of that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Friends, the commitment that Lawson describes that I just read is not extraordinary. It's the normal, cross-centered pattern of Christian discipleship. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. I'm sorry if you've been told differently over the years. If you've been told that being a follower of Jesus doesn't come at any cost, that it doesn't require any sacrifice. I'm sorry if you've heard the Christianity light, Diet Coke version of the gospel. But friends, please see from Jesus' own mouth, this is what it looks like to be his disciple. One who renounces all things for his sake. Vince Havner, a man who I quoted just a moment ago, he said this, Jesus Christ demands more complete allegiance than any dictator who ever lived. The difference is, he has a right to it. Jesus has the right, having purchased us at such a cost, to every part of our lives. And so I'd like to invite you now. There's two kinds of people, I suspect, who are watching this live stream at the moment. I want to speak to both of you just briefly. If you're watching here tonight and you aren't yet a disciple of the Lord Jesus, perhaps from God's own word, he's revealed to you that you might have thought you were a follower of Jesus, but in fact you never have been. You've only ever been half-hearted, half-in in your commitment. Well, friend, praise God for you and praise God that he has revealed that to you from his word. Let me urge you tonight... Commit, recommit yourself to the Lord Jesus. Perhaps you've seen that you are the one, you are the king who has 10,000 men and you need to make a peace treaty with the king who is more powerful and glorious than you before it's too late. If that's you, confess your sin, your wrongdoing, your rebellion against God. Jesus died on the cross to pay the debt for your sin. He wants to welcome you into his family knowing the cost. Pray to him, repent, and please let us know. Later on in the service, there's going to be an email address coming up. Please get in touch and let us know. We'd love to hear about that and walk that road with you. But the second category of people, perhaps you're watching tonight and you're already a follower of Jesus. You've already made that commitment to him. Well, I'd like to challenge you tonight in a symbolic act of recommitment to him. All of us, myself included, we all have things 
that we need to give up, that we need to renounce, that we need to put on a lower priority order as we follow Jesus. And so I'd like to invite you tonight to prayerfully, determinedly lay that down before the Lord Jesus. Committing to follow him above all else, to walk the way of the cross. We're going to do that now through a time of reflection. So there in your home, can I encourage you, spend a moment or two examining your heart, examining your life, and bring these things before our Lord. Let's do that now in humble repentance before our God.